Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Foobar Radio. Ah, we're off! And, uh, and have you... Uh, we should have timed it so that you were actually pouring the coffee when we started. Uh, and then it would have gone all over you. You'd have had third-degree burns. And it would have been such a good start to the show. Real, real laugh riot. Um, so you're listening, <laughs> you're listening to Five Star Family Fun Size Fan Club. Uh, my name is uh, Nick, and this is Daniel Metcalf, and this is the show. Uh, first rule of fan club is tell your friends, and the second rule of fan club is please, for the love of God, tell your friends. We're going to have a real fucking slick show today. It's going to be slick as a Slicker than a weasel. So, um, um, Nat, uh, how are you? Pretty good. I'm, uh, if, if anyone watches this on any of the video clips later, I am practicing with an angle poised light to give me some extra mood lighting because it feels like last week I was doing it. By the end of it, I was basically just sat in a dark room by myself and well, it looked depressing. Now that the clocks have gone forward or backwards, whatever it is, four o'clock is actually quite late in the day now. And, yeah, it does uh, like that. Especially in like lockdown, it's like... Oh, yeah, we pre-record Wednesdays uh, at two till four. And then it's broadcast uh, Fridays, 12 till two. And then it's a podcast. Uh, and uh, it doesn't matter what time it is after that. But, but all the way through summer, it was kind of like... Two o'clock felt quite early in the day, and then four o'clock, you still had the rest of the day. But really, you're scrambling to get stuff done after four o'clock, I find. Mind you, every time, time remember when time played havoc on you during lockdown, and, uh, and nothing seemed to make sense anymore. And I, I just remember us finishing recording, and then before I knew it, it was midnight, and it's kind of like, oh, the day's gone. But um, I'm getting... I'm not even interested in what I'm saying. I'm just... <laughs> no, but I think it's a nice... I mean, I like this. This is like a good shape to my week, this is. <laughs> um, this is something I look forward to, especially now. Uh, there's not much going on. This is this is a packed day for me now. I don't do fan club in the middle of it. Oh, really? So I've got, like, you know, the whole day's built around this. Yeah, it is. In an, quite, yeah, I, I think I prefer it on Fridays. I feel like Friday was always, like, where my week was heading. And now it's kind of like, um, yeah, it's just sort of like it's this thing that happens in the middle of the week and I can't really get anything else done on a Wednesday of any merit. And then before you know it, Thursday, Friday, weekend. But if you have four days all in a row to get something done, then I think very satisfying. I'm not going to complain, but um, I am going to complain a little bit um what a week we've had what a week this is yeah this is week one of our lockdown we went in a lockdown on a friday on a saturday we got rid of uh, uh trump we've got a new prime minister uh, well, got rid of it looks like he's been almost 100 percent voted out mm -hmm. but uh, some people obviously will feel a bit sad about that sure. and some people will obviously feel a bit happy about that won't they they will, they will. And it's 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 funny, because I did feel quite removed from it, but it does feel like that and the, the news of, like, the vaccine on on Sunday or Monday, mm. it all start to feel like, oh, do you know what? It is nice not to hear something that isn't just grim. And you realise how, 
how little news you've had that wasn't incredibly grim. But months, even, and months and months. Not even news, just controversial chit chat that's just yeah. absolute bullshit and bollocks. And it's just kind of like, um, you know, we've all been in lockdown for this year, and um, I've all I've I've been obsessed with uh, the Johnny Depp case and uh, Donald Trump. For the, I was obsessed with British politics for the beginning of the year, but I found it was too close to home and it was too depressing. And I found that, you know, if I just ignored all of that, then I could get my information off, like, you or my mum, you know? Those are the two big ones. And, um, and so I sort of, like, avoided British politics because I found it really bleak. And then American politics sort of, like, took over and... It was like, it's just this noise that's been going on in the background, and you don't really... It feels like um, the builders next door have finally finished the job and they've fucked off now. And yeah. I can actually hear myself think, and there's not kind of like this just annoying buzzing noise. You're right, it's, like, it's almost like a lack of noise. It's that sort of thing where everything's gone a bit quiet, and it does feel like a real... Like, there is a sense of, right like, relief about it. I mean, it's not all good news, and nothing's certainly, like, certainly vaccine-wise, nothing's 100% yet or anything. But you just go, oh, finally, something that's not, like, awful. Yeah. Just something that's not, like, you know, billions of deaths and things. And Yeah, and hearing, oh, Biden, hearing Biden to his first speech was sort of like... Um, Oh my God! There's someone that's actually got coherent sentences and that's actually talking, you know, uh, empathetically about. You know, he he's trying to. He was talking about like uniting and healing the nation, and you kind of like go. There's a guy that's been in there for four years that's just tried to tear everything apart. And I understand people thinking it's a good thing to sort of try and shake up politics, but it was so negative, and it just, um, you know. I think with Trump, you got half the nation that really loved him, obviously, because the statistic, you know, because the, the, the results were so, like, almost, not 50-50, but quite high either side. Higher than I think anyone on the left would really like to admit. Mm. Or or would admit, but it's, it's kind of, like, depressingly high, right? And the, the, so the fact of the matter is half of the country really liked him. And then the other half of the country either didn't like him or preferred Biden, but more likely, I think he was the best out of two sort of bad choices, really. Because he's not perfect. No. I guess... But, but, to, but to have a guy that's been made making speeches that's willingly been trying to upset half the nation hmm. and then to have the flip side of someone that's made a speech that's actually trying to placate half of a nation that don't even want him there. I think that the, hearing those two people speak was, is just, you know... I think as well... It's such they, relief. Yeah, I think the news reporting as well has become worse in a way that we've got to kind of rise above it. Like, it's almost that people want, want them now to pick a fight, whereas I think it's much better there to be this kind of civility between them. And there was a thing yesterday where someone had said... Oh, what's the first thing you what like? Have you got a message for Donald Trump? And he said something like, "All oh, right, uh, I'd like to say, uh, Mr. President, I look forward to having a conversation with you." And you think it's so respectful in a way that you wouldn't get the other way, and it's also civil in a way that's not that the press almost don't want now. That they're so used to having someone pick a fight that to have someone be kind of 
really reasonable and say, hey, let's have a chat. <laughs> it's like, um, it's almost like that's the best result. Yeah, you know what I mean? Absolutely. Like, oh, that's what <laughs> they like. Let's have a talk and see if what we can figure out. Or Absolutely. And there's lots of left-wing gloating now where people are just sort of like rubbing it in people's faces. And you go, how does that make you any better than what they've been doing? You know, and I just think that it's kind of like, uh, especially right now, it's kind of like, just don't count your chickens before they're hatched. It's been such a crazy year. It's just like, let's just kind of like wait until he is actually in the White House, and then you can start kind of... No, like, I, don't, I, don't mind, I don't mind people celebrating at all, and it's nice... I don't, like, mind people, I, don't mind, I don't mind people celebrating. I don't mind people celebrating. I think that the tone of what they're doing is kind of like, Jesus Christ, all right, it hasn't been a week yet. <laughs> this is the sort of thing that you do at, just before they turn around and go, oh, by the way, we are going to do a recount, and Trump has won. Just fucking calm the fuck down until we fucking absolutely one million percent know for sure. I just think it's been such a bad, it's been such a bad year. Anyway, we don't talk about politics, but um, um, but we are today. So this is our political special. Um, no. I guess it, you know, if it's like it's something that's been positive, and for something which we're trying to, you know, we do try and look up and not down, and we try and be a bit positive about things we like. And so it's very good, and I am happy about it. I think it, it's a sense of relief, and uh, and probably I'm probably more relieved than I expected to be. I'm or happy. Maybe. I'm happy as well. But um, but if the if the idea is to one day work together with people and unite people, the way to do it isn't to go in your face, you fucking idiot. <laughs> do you know what I mean? I do know you mean. And that's the, yeah. that's what I've got a problem with, is yeah. that's the general attitude, you yeah. know? That's it. I think that's what I mean. I think part of the problem is that I think is probably caused by someone like Trump is it means almost like the uh, the narrative around it and the way people present news is this way to be like, so what have you got to say to him kind of attitude? Like, it's almost like smack talk. And you go, the answer is, he says... I look forward to having a conversation with you. You talk about, about Biden. Yeah, right. And it's just that thing of that's no, but I mean the way that the way that kind of politics works now, or the way that news reporting of politics works, is almost that it's that sort of smack talk. It's almost like WWF wrestling now. Yeah. Like, what do you got to say to him? And it's like the answer is what we used to do. And it's like, right, well, I'll look forward to it. It's just sort of a bit more civil and a bit. Yeah, more... it's, it's it's politics is entertainment. Have you watched the Trump Show? No, I haven't. I so say I've watched two. It's three parts. I've watched two two thirds of it, and then I watched a little bit of the third part last week before I watched the first and the second. Oh, it's all jumbled up. Um, yeah, but it's all like about how he, he he tried to make politics entertainment, and you go, that's fine. But I don't really want politics to be entertainment. Mm. I don't want politics to be a constant noise in the background. I want um, I want to find out important information when it's required. And exactly. I don't want. I don't want it to be complicated. I don't want it to be any more complicated than that. Yeah. Um, I didn't even particularly like the way. I mean, it, it's bound to happen, and I understand it. But I don't like the way people were talking about the election results in this kind of. This is going to happen, and it was always a bit like, let's not let's not count your chickens. Let's not start celebrating now. Whatever. I found that a bit like I could. Ra- I'd quite happily not hear it. It's like that's all done. The votes are in. Let's just sit tight and not 
Like, I've got no interest in watching results coming in. Yeah, but also, also the, the media covered absolutely everything that Donald Trump did. Mm. You know, so, uh, so all of this stuff about um, mail-in ballots and stuff and how um, people have done mail-in ballots for years and years and years and years, and then all of a sudden they start saying, well, there's this new thing called mail-in ballots. Uh, you know, he was he was setting up the fact that the mail-in ballots was going to be an issue on the actual election day, like six, seven months ago. Uh-huh. And do you know what? Cor- oh, well, I'm just... This is conspiracy theory stuff. But, I mean... But, I mean, like... he knew, For six, seven months, he's been setting up the stuff about the mail-in ballots. And the, the every news source has reported on it. And then it's become more and more of a thing, and then you get to the day, and then it, it comes down to this thing. And it's kind of like you go, yeah, sure. But if you'd have actually stopped giving him a mouthpiece, then he wouldn't have been able to do anything. All he'd have had is Twitter. I don't know. I think everyone is... Um, it's, just, it's, it's just been a horrible clusterfuck of four years. And... <laughs> um, and finally, I hope that we can all get back on to uh, trying to help each other out. Yeah, I quite like the idea of having a bit more even ground. I find all this stuff, like, just tiresome and tiring. Anyway. Anyway, uh, and then there's uh, been a cure for coronavirus. So we're all back to work, and uh, <laughs> looks like everything that we were talking about over the last few weeks has uh, reversed, and uh, we're all going back to working in clubs as of next Friday, Correct. Not quite, not quite. I think you're all right for a little while, Nick. I think you're going to spend some time at home for a bit. And, uh, you know, we'll all get back to normal at some point. Yeah, yeah. But, like, yeah, gradually, yeah? Gradually, yeah, gradually. You're not back on tour now. No. You're on tour! Not yet. I'm going to knock on the door with a car outside. (laughs) It's all right. You gotta get in. You gotta get into these hot pants, Nick. Okay, okay, I'll do that. Anyway, so um, anyway, welcome everyone from wherever you are. Uh, we can all be united in our mutual love of John Carpenter's The Thing. <laughs> um, so, what have you? What have you been a fan of this week, Nathaniel? I'll tell you what, I've enjoyed actually. I've watched the first two um, Count of Monte Cristo movies from the thirties. With oh, Douglas really? Fairbanks Jr., was he in them? No, no, it's it's Robert. No. I, t- the first I one. took a punt. I took a punt. You know what? It was a good one, though. No, thank it, you. It wasn't. It wasn't outlandish by any means. It would no. have been. It would have been, it been very good. Could have been. Yeah. It's only got to be about one of about three or four people, anyway. So, who was in the Count of Monte Cristo? Uh, Robert Donat. Oh. Um, oh, Duncan. <laughs> <laughs> He's in. You'd know him. You'd know him. He's in um, uh, the 39 Steps and Things, the Hitchcock film. What, the original? Yeah. He's in that. He's in... uh, Did he remake? Did he remake the 39 Steps? He didn't remake it. There is a remake of it with Robert Powell in the 70s, I think. Yeah, I'm not thinking of any fucking film with Robert Powell in. 
Robert Powell fucking Robert Powell wasn't a movie star. Yeah, Robert, he was. Robert, Robert, Robert Powell wasn't a movie star. What was that one he did called Harlequin? Harlequin. It's in the Aspects. That's a good movie. Isn't Jesus it? Christ Superstar. They're all like TV <laughs> movies that come on during holiday season. Jesus Imaginary. Was he in? Was he? Was he in? Uh, um, so was he in a film called Harlequin? Uh, it rings a bell. Actually, it does ring a bell. Was it called Harlequin or was it called something else? I think he's really good, Robert Powell. Yeah, fucking hell, he was great with Jasper Carrot and the Detectives. He's not a fucking movie star. You can't say... You can't say that Robert Powell... You can't say that Alfred Hitchcock's 39 Steps was remade with Robert Powell. It was the man who knew too much, right? That was the one that he remade. But he didn't remake the 39 Steps as well either, right? Uh... Yeah, so, uh, the, yeah, so, yeah, The Man Who Knew Too Much is... Maybe that was... Was that Robert Dona, actually? Man Who Knew Too Much? Maybe that could be. Could be. Um, apparently, though, Natalie's just said that Robert Dona was in Goodbye, Mr Chips, yeah? And he suffered from chronic asthma, which affected his career and limited to appearing in only 20 films. That's good, isn't it? Doing 20 films, but also then being, like, a proper movie star within those 20... Well, who was the guy that was in four films um, that died? He was in Godfather, Godfather 2, Dog Day Afternoon, and Deer Hunter. Uh, um, uh, um, uh, what's he called? I want to say Jim Caviezel, but that's not him, is it? It's close. It is. That's what I mean. Go on, Natalie, do your, do your best. If this is the first time you've tuned in to Fan Club, <laughs> this is the least accurate either of us have ever been on anything. Oh, I mean... I mean, what a week. I mean, what, they, week. I mean what I'd say is, they're proper, like, swashbucklers. John Cazale. Yes. Is yeah. that it? John Cazale? John Cazale? John yeah. Cazale? John Cazale? He made four films and then he died, but they were all stone-cold classics. With all the same kind of groups of people. Yeah, that's probably why. He was in Godfather and Godfather 2, and then he was in Doctor Afternoon with Al Pacino from Godfather and Godfather 2, and then he was in The Deer Hunter with Robert De Niro from Godfather 2. And then he probably went, I'm out of here. I've done it. He was probably, he was probably being asked to do something rubbish and went, ah, is this it now? Sure. Oh, he was in the conversation. He made five films. He was in the conversation as well. Great movie. Which, which is like uh, Francis Ford Coppola's uh, best non-gangster-related movie, I'd say. It's better than Apocalypse Now. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I couldn't go that. What do you like about Apocalypse Now? What is it? Is it how long it is? How how I, boring I it is in places? The surreal it, bits? Yeah. I can't believe, like, it, I can't believe how they made it, almost. It's like, I can't work out... Yeah. watch Hearts of Darkness. Hearts of Darkness is an amazing documentary about the making of Apocalypse Now. The film is such a chore to get through, but the fucking making of is just absolutely fascinating. You know, there's one shot in Apocalypse Now, which is still Harvey Keitel as the lead. Oh, really? Yeah. So Harvey Keitel was the lead in Apocalypse Now. He got there, and then he hated the the humidity and the long shoots, and he hated the fact that it was overrunning. He just said, "Look, did he just... have a heart attack, or was that inviting Shane?" 
no, they, um, Harvey Keitel just like replaced me, and then Martin Sheen came out mm. and was sort of like um, having a midlife crisis. He was too old for it. He thought he was like uh, either forty or just in his early forties, and just like I'm too old for all this. And then he, uh, yeah, had a heart attack. But, like, that bit when he smashes the mirror is him actually having a breakdown on screen. Like, I find everything behind the scenes of Apocalypse Now, the making of it, just all of the stories, uh, Francis Ford Coppola's whole transformation, you know, he was overweight and then he lost loads of weight and then he shaved so no one would recognise him when he came back to America. And just all of the stories about Apocalypse Now are really, really fascinating. The film is kind of like... Oh, it's such a tedious film. Whereas the conversation is just absolutely uh, just riveting. And I really love Gene Hackman. And so to have kind of like a real bona fide, brilliant Gene Hackman performance from Francis Ford Coppola is kind of really exciting. Um, it's a bit where um, the boat is pulling out uh, in, during sunset in Apocalypse Now and uh, Martin Sheen is stood on the boat. But it's not Martin Sheen, it's Harvey Keitel. Okay. They just didn't refilm it, I guess. Or they didn't even realise, because you can't tell. But that's my little fun fact. So go on. You saw the, the Count of Monte Cristo, which I always get mixed up with the man with the iron mask, but it's not that. Starring Douglas Fairbanks Jr.? <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> I, uh, I, and I really... Yeah, it's, it's really proper fun movie and proper swashbuckler. Then I watched The Son of Monte Cristo, which is a sequel six years later, which doesn't have... I can't think who it is in it. It's not Robert Donat. And it starts, and it's one of those sequels you go, this is a bit cheaper than the first one, and you think it might be a bit of a chore, but it's better. Is it Robert Powell, perhaps? Is he in it? Not Robert Powell. That'd be too young. Too young for Powell. All right. He's like a baby, Robert Powell. Sure. It would be the son of, so it makes sense. The baby of Monte Cristo. And it's all about him trying to fit an iron mask on a baby. And the, <laughs> and the baby running around. It's starring, love. Starring, um, starring Seth Green. Or uh, who's the guy out of Scream? What's his name? Um, uh, Jamie Kennedy. <laughs> Jamie Kennedy as son of Monte Cristo. Uh, yeah, you can just imagine how good that would be. You don't have to imagine. They pretty much made it with exactly the film that I'm imagining called Son of the Mask. Um, OK, yeah. right. So, so it's a cheaper sequel, but it's better. Yeah, it's like proper action sort of packed. It's really good. I'd say the main guy who's, who's Monte Cristo in this one probably isn't as good. Is that his name? Well, he's his called... name is Monte, Monte Cristo. <laughs> he's a Count of Monte Cristo, but I think he's called... What's he called? Dundas? Dun, Dandes? Dantes. It's the Count, Dantes. the Count of Julie Christie. And then Julie Christie's there, and someone just goes, one. And then that's the end of the film. <laughs> the second one is like... Ah, um, oh, come on, mate, it was better than that. Uh, come on, that's what it's all about. Keep it light, mate. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on, I'll tell you it again. Julie Christie walks in. It's yeah. a film called The Count of Julie Christie, right? <laughs> Julie Christie walks in, and then some guy goes, just goes, one. And then <laughs> it's the end of the film. I do like it. Come on! It's good. It's good. Come like on. It. Come on. You could do a Don't Look Now uh, team-up. You know, like, it's like, ah, oh, how many films did Donald Sutherland make? 
with Judy Christie. He did Don't Look Now and he did The Count of Judy Christie. He was the finger. <laughs> People don't know that. Donald Sutherland played the finger in The Count of <laughs> Anyway, carry on. But like the tagline for The Son of Monte Cristo is an action adventure in the vein of Zorro. And you go, surely it's in the vein of The Count of Monte Cristo. Sequel <laughs> to The Count of Monte Cristo. But actually, when you watch it, you go, yeah, it's like Zorro. They change it. So it's like, it looks like they've done a Zorro film in between, which has been so successful, they go, let's do Monte Cristo as Zorro. So in it, he's got like a, it's like a superhero movie. He's now got like, he becomes this sort of character called The Torch, and he's got this sort of alter ego as the Count of Monte Cristo, and he's like a sort of masked, masked man. George Sanders is the baddie, and he's brilliant. It's real, it's like a proper modern um, villain performance. It feels like, and you think George Sanders is great anyway, so you have that. But he's much, he's sort of playing against type now, and I'm so used to seeing him as like an old man in this, as this sort of young man who's like sword fighting and things. He's proper like, um, uh, like he feels like a proper villain. Who's George Sanders? He's in, uh, in later life, he's in a bunch of kind of British movies. Um, he's in Psychomania. Uh, but in the sort of 50s, he's in, what's the film? Um, oh, man, my brain today. I'll definitely know this. Um, I'm not, the one with, Come on. the one that's sort of about the theatre world. Stage right. No. Okay, just to uh, for the, our listeners at home, Edmund Dantes played the Count of Monte Cristo in Son of Monte Cristo. Was it Son of Monte Cristo? Uh, Count of Monte Cristo and Son of Monte Cristo. Son is of Monte Cristo is the sequel. Yeah. Sure. Uh, but you haven't cut... I was literally buying you time so you could come All up with a thing, but you used that time that I bought you to have a sip of your fucking coffee. No, but now you still don't, don't know what the name of the... All about Eve. All about Eve. All about Eve. He's like sort of baddie guy in that. And he's in that, he's the sort of agent guy, isn't he? The sort of creepy agent. It's, but, all, uh, about, it's all about Eve, not all about Adam. It's, it's all about Eve, not all about Steve. That's... Uh, <laughs> 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 what <laughs> religious religious homophobes <laughs> that have ran out of stuff to argue about shout <laughs> uh, all about Eve is it um, George is it, Sanders is the baddie and he's really good who's George Sanders wasn't he the guy that um, in between his the beginning of his career and the end of his career he joined the army and he, he 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 got all the way up to Colonel status. <laughs> That's why you when you remember him as an old man, because <laughs> you remember him off all of them uh, chicken boxes. That's the guy, yeah. That's him. Yeah. That's him. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, he's also the saint. I'm with you. The original, the saint in the sort of serials. Do you know the guy that played Colonel Sanders also played Ronald McDonald in the fifties? What the same folk? Is that real? So, no, I just made that up, but it's uh, <laughs> it's interesting. That's fan club. It would so, be an interesting fact if it was true. It would be an interesting fact. No, it wasn't. It was the guy that played the Burger King also played Colonel Sanders. Is that true? 
No, but um, you can imagine it would be. So, okay, so Edmund Dantes plays the son of the Monte Cristo, and Rob Donat plays the Monte Cristo. No, 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 no. Edmund Dantes is the character name. So. Dantes is the Count of Monte Cristo. Okay. Also, the Flash. The Fireball. It's called the Torch. The Torch. What is the difference between. The Count of Monte Cristo, right, mm-hmm. and the son of Monte Cristo. What makes what makes it more Zorro like? Because it's like the next generation. Yeah, it's but like yeah, but you're not you're not really explaining what the Count of Monte Cristo is. The Count of Monte Cristo is a is based Alexander on a novel, book. yeah, an Alexandra Damas book, right? Yeah. Uh, who also did the Man with the Iron Mask and. Uh, three Musketeers, right? That's right, yeah. Now, are any of the Musketeer characters in The Count of Monte Cristo? Because they did no. appear in The Man with the Iron Mask, didn't they? They do, yeah. OK, it's a, it's a shame that they didn't do, like, the Oliver Reed. It's a shame that Richard Lester didn't do, kind of like, The Three Musketeers, The Four Musketeers, Return of the Musketeers, and The Man in the Iron Mask. True, yeah. They should have done that. It's a wasted opportunity, because there was actually already a sequel there. And a shared, a shared universe they could have had. Would have been great, but go, carry on, carry on. Um, that's it, really. I'm just sort of saying. No, just tell me what makes the Count of Monte Cristo yeah. different yeah. from Zorro. Um, oh, it's sort of a different thing, really. It's more like a proper revenge story. So he gets he's imprisoned for twenty years, falsely imprisoned, and then he comes back and he has this sort of buried treasure, and he comes back with this title. The Count of Monte Cristo, and comes back as um, as this count and sort of enacts revenge on all the people that have wronged him. That's why they read it in uh, Shawshank Redemption. Right, right. That's why they do that. Um, I, I had. I so remember- he's ro- but he's wrongly imprisoned, and he comes back as a count. Yeah, he escaped. Can you just can you just announce that you're a count? He he gets his treasure in the film, that sort of buried treasure, that he's imprisoned and he meets an, an old man in prison. Is it Dracula? No, he's not Dracula. Because Dracula's always young. Yeah. No, he ages. He ages, that's it. So he's sort of aged and looks different enough, I guess, that people don't recognise him. So he goes back to where he, where he came from as a count and as a rich man and, uh, and then enacts his revenge on the people that have wronged him and put him in prison in the first place. Because everyone assumes he's still in prison or dead. Here's a fun fact about Robert Powell. Mm-hmm. He loves beer. And if a pub doesn't serve real ale, he will leave very quickly. Thanks, Natalie. <laughs> Robert Powell. I'm not saying I don't like Robert Powell. I don't want that to come across as the main thing. I just think that... I think he made a film called Harlequin. I and think it just, And it felt incredibly TV, right? It felt like a portion of a Tales of Terror, right? He's in um, one of those as well, I think, isn't he? Yeah, that's probably why I'm thinking that, right? <laughs> and I also feel like Jesus Christ of Nazareth... Um, of, Jesus Christ of Nazareth... Nazareth pop idol. Um, he is... Uh, that always feels like it's on at Easter, yeah. or it used to, and it always used to feel like that's the guy at the detectives yeah. playing Jesus. Right, this is a team. I know where you're coming from. I know where you're coming from. You're saying you like him, 
nothing against him, but you don't feel he's a movie star. Exactly. Other than the fact that I hate him. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, yeah, Robert Powell. Right. Great. So you've been watching Robert Powell movies this week, Nat. That's um, brilliant. Let's uh, um, we'll, we'll, find out, we'll find out which one's your favourite after this week's song. <laughs> Nick Helm and the Daniel Metcalf fan club on Foobar Radio. And we're back. And we're back. Of course, he said he can see that this might look crazy to any passers-by, but believes the dogs understand what he's saying. Robert Powell there, Robert Powell facts. You've got to read it in my order. You've got um, to read the last one. <laughs> well, I was, uh, I, I was rushing. Anyway, so what was, what was your favourite Robert Powell movie this week? Um, my favourite Robert Powell movie this week. I like The Aspects. Have you ever seen that film? Uh, no, but I like the original. I like the, that's the sequel to uh, Someone's Broken My Ass, isn't it? Um, right, yeah. I think they're uh, starring uh, uh, Ronnie Corbett, um, who, of course, was a movie star, but was later only remembered for TV. Uh, now, uh, what else have you been a fan of this week? What's uh, the aspects? What is the aspects? It's the one where you can... Con- like, if you, you can collect the, like, soul of someone at the point they're going to die and keep it in a little box, and if, if you catch the bit of if your soul at the point you're going to die... Then you, what? You'll, you'll never die. And then when do, when does the asphyxing come into it? it is, that is the asphyxing. It's like some sort of, like, um, I think it's like Egyptian... Um, it's like a sort of mummy variant of some sort of symbol or thing that you can isn't it what well, i'm glad you've told me um oh no no it's not that it's that's a different film the yeah. aspect is that one but it's to do with it's robert powell and robert stevens and it is that they collect they collect your soul at the point of death so it's meant to be like asphyxiation oh asphyxiate so it's nothing to do with asphyxing no, not fixing an ass, no, no. OK, well, well, you've saved me a lot of time. Uh, it's one of those films that I would have saved for a rainy day for many years, and then by the time I do actually watch it, I'd be very disappointed uh, that it didn't tick all the boxes. But uh, thanks for saving with me and a lot of, I would say, a lot of our listeners a lot of time. Uh, and which reminds me, hello, Malta. So hello. what else have we uh, been watching? What I've also seen. I've seen some films that I wasn't that fussed about. I saw I saw The Midnight Meat Train. Uh, starring Vinnie Jones. Starring Vinnie Jones and Bradley Cooper. Couldn't believe that Vinnie Jones is in a film with Bradley Cooper. That there was an era where those, like, ships could have passed in such a kind of... So is it pre-Hangover, Bradley Cooper? Just. It's like the year before. So is it, he's done The Wedding Crashes, but he hasn't done The Hangover. Yeah. It just feels like none of this... He wouldn't have done it. It's also got... Um, is it starring it, Vinnie Jones and then Bradley Cooper? Well, I, I think... Vinnie, it, uh, Vinnie Jones is the bad guy on the Mad Night Meat Train, is he? And yeah, Bradley he, Cooper is the hero. He's the hero, yeah. But it Vinnie Jones like, at that time was the bigger name. Yes, it feels like that. Although I think they have flipped the credits since. I think they, they saw he's onto a good thing and went, actually, now let's make Bradley Cooper top billing. Right. 
that's what it looks like. But it is sort of remarkable that there was a time when Vinnie Jones was, you know, the lead in a film. Uh, it's not... I didn't really like it, but I would say it's not awful, awful. <laughs> it's like uh, I watched it because um, I watched The Candyman last year and hadn't seen it in years. Oh, it... with um, Gene Wilder? No, that's... Uh, uh, that's... Willy Wonka and the Chocolate. That's, sorry, that's I'm thinking that's that's stir crazy, isn't it? That's stir crazy. Yeah. Uh, which one is Candyman? It's the one. <laughs> 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 the like the horror one with uh, oh with, with Johnny Todd. Depp, Tony Todd, Tony Todd, Johnny Depp, <laughs> and uh, and Deep Roy. That's the one, yeah. When he uh, kills them by uh, slitting their throats in a barber shop, the Candyman. You're talking about Sweeney Todd just now, I mean, because you've got a, a white streak in your hair. I've got a white streak in my hair, which is always there. And Natalie just said, "Oh, you've got a white streak in your hair." And I, I said, think yes. that's sort of a dream to have a white streak in your hair. I think it's. Um, well, I said, I said yes, I, I do. She goes. I said, I said, it's always there. And she says, is it? And I said, yes. She goes, so you dye it? And you go, no, I don't dye it. It's just I've got, like, a white streak in my hair. And then you said, like, Sweeney Todd. And I go, yes, like Sweeney Todd. I'd prefer that than Toast of London, because obviously... Uh, uh, he's got a white streak as well. He's got a he? white streak in his hair, which is very cool, obviously. But um, I don't want people to think I'm dyeing my hair so that I can be like Matt Berry. If people think I'm dying, yeah, nothing wrong with Matt Berry. But no, you um, don't want to know. You don't want to try and think you're disguising yourself as him. I don't want people to a think that I'm trying to be Matt Berry, or b, uh, I, <laughs> I love Matt Berry's career so much more than my own. <laughs> that you know, it'd be like a comedian trying to look like another comedian. Yeah, you know. I uh, couldn't think of any other examples. Um, but, you know, I'm very much removed from that world. Uh, so, The Candyman. It's not called The Candyman, it's called Candyman. Candyman. Say it once, say it twice, say it three times, say it four. There he is. Give him another one. Say it five. Then he comes along. Oh, and then he comes in the room and goes, Sorry, I was just in the toilet. I <laughs> caught a shot. He is yeah. often hiding in toilets, though. There's a bit where he hides in a toilet. Kills, uh, he doesn't kill Ted Raimi in the toilet, does he? But the blood comes through the ceiling and uh, pours yeah. all over Ted Raimi. And I was very Ted excited Raimi's when... He's in Midnight Meat Train for a bit. Of course he is. Ted Raimi's in Midnight Meat Train? Yeah, for, like, um, one one scene. I might watch Midnight Meat Train then, cos, like... But I always got disappointed whenever, um... When it, uh, the white grey streak is known as a Marlin streak and is an example of po poliosis, mm. which in short means the absence of melanin in the hair, which results in a white streak. Throughout history, the streak has become synonymous with evil. When I was, uh, go on. So if you've got a lack of melanin in your hair, it'd be more likely that'd be more true, surely, if you just had white or grey hair. Yeah, I haven't got I haven't got any melanin in my hair. I've got mainly uh, uh, Des in my hair. Des O'Connor <laughs> and Melanin Sykes. Um, <laughs> how long ago have Des and Mel been on the TV? Right, we've got a guest on who um, 
would not if he thought that this is what we've been doing for the first hour, he wouldn't do the second hour. I'll never hear this. <laughs> um so um so Candyman oh every time I saw a film that had Ted Raimi in it, um I would be very excited because I would spend the rest of the film with my fingers crossed hoping that Bruce Campbell would turn up because they're like rats aren't they wherever there's one there's the other uh, that's, what, that's what I but like Ted Raimi was in a film legitimately that had nothing to do with Sam Raimi it's true although I'm sure that Clive Barker and Sam Raimi were friends right that's what I think there's something going on behind the scenes I kind of don't like that often it feels a bit too like chummy I but also think that like Ted Raimi pulls you right out of the movie right at the beginning exactly. A hundred percent. That's what I thought. And I then went. you spend the rest of the film waiting for for like um, you know Bruce Campbell to turn yeah. up, and he, and he does. I'd say Midnight Meat Train, and as I would say about Clive Barker in general, I think Candyman is brilliant. It's Midnight Meat Train, Clive Barker. Yeah. Is it? Yeah. Did he direct it? No. Isn't it a remake of a fifties film? No, I don't think so. It's, it's from a Clive Barker short story. Oh, maybe I'm thinking of Terror Train. And I think originally Midnight Meat Train was going to be the Bernard Rose who directed Candyman's follow-up to Candyman, and he was going to try and Candyman it up a bit, I think, and have, have the baddie as... Essentially, have Vinnie Jones as the Candyman and make that the sequel to Candyman. I thought Clive Barker directed Candyman. No, it's directed by Bernard Rose. I think... So uh, Clive Barker directed Hellraiser... Yeah, and he directed. Which is set in England. Yeah. Candyman, the book, is set in a council estate in Liverpool. Yeah. And it's actually set... The film is set in... Oh, uh, where is it? Somewhere in somewhere in America, isn't it? The Projects. The Projects. Um, so yeah, Candyman is one of the few... And I'm calling it modern, even though it was made in, what, 91, 92? Hmm. I think it's one of the few modern horror movies that genuinely chills... I just think it's just gen. It wasn't going for um, as great as I think Evil Dead is. I think that it really did set a tone for the rest of the decade on how you make uh, horror films. Evil Dead, Evil Dead Two, Reanimator, Fright Night. Uh, you have all of these '80s, early '90s horror movies that are kind of like um, very gory and you know uh, splatstick. You know they're kind of they're funny. They're kind of comedies. And they're really gory, and then Candyman comes along and uh, doesn't feel like it's part of that movement right. at all. And is I think just... that's sort of looking back on it, isn't it? I think like when it came out, like the sequel feels like it, they're trying to turn it into that more, whereas Candyman actually just feels like a proper, really well, smart horror film. It feels very modern. Well, it's it's kind of like you've got your Freddy Krueger-type character, but they don't go that route with, look at all of the um, elaborate kills we're going to do. Um, yeah, really great. Tony Todd is brilliant in it. Um, like, to the point, he's so good in that film that you see him in anything now and you, like, you give him a free pass, really, because it's Tony Todd. He's quite a funny interview, Tony Todd, because he's also... I mean, he's a very serious actor and takes it all very seriously, and there's not a bit of him that, that's at all camping anything up. And I don't think he would for a minute, either. I think he's totally... Like, he's a sort of theatre actor, takes it all very seriously takes the part very seriously in a way that's quite amusing, but it actually works because I just think for a minute, I don't think for a minute that he would ever camp it up or uh, do anything that would kind of take anything away from that character. I think he was like a tragic hero. And it is that thing. It's, it's a proper tragic 
sort of Phantom of the Opera type character than it is like a... It's, 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 classic, it's classic universal horror. Yeah, you know, exactly. Which, in a way, um, you know, talking about Friday the 13th and all that stuff, in a way that that was trying to be, but wasn't really, because there was none of, like... It was, it was an iconic horror movie icon, to use the word icon... Uh, twice, um, you know, Jason Voorhees is the Phantom of the Opera without any of like the artist. Because I think it's because there's so many sequels, you know, that there's not enough story to fill up nine, ten, twelve films. You know, so you've got like the beginning of you've got the first Friday the Thirteenth, which sets up the story, and then you've got another ten films that precede it. That basically not adding to the story, just extending how many people he kills, and then that's it, really. Uh, although, the, was it the fourth one or it was the fifth one? The one with Crispin is the sixth one where Crispin Glover's in it. That film was directed, it's in color, but it was made to be in black and white so, uh, so you could watch it in black and white and it would feel like an old universal horror movie. But, um, but Candyman has all of that story, you know, to make it feel like one of those... The thing about the Universal Monsters were they were all tragic and they were all sort of showing you a part of the human condition. So they were monsters, but they weren't kind of... They weren't all necessarily evil. Mm. And Candyman is kind of... I would say Candyman is pretty evil, but it, they it sort of tried to be justified within the film. Mm. Um, and of course, Tony Todd uh, is famous for being uh, uh, beating Taron Edgerton to it and playing Rocket Man the first time round in The Rock. In The Rock, starring Nicolas Cage. Oh right, okay. Uh, he's uh, he's the guy that gets shot out of the the, the lighthouse with a rocket and. Uh, <laughs> Nicholas Cage shows, do you like the song Rocket Man? And Tony Todd says, what kind of candy ass shit is that? And he goes, oh, because it's you. <laughs> and then he shoots him. He goes, what do you mean? He goes, you're the Rocket Man. And then he shoots him with a rocket, and Tony Todd goes, no, you got me. You know, it's really, it's really, like, drawn out. Tell you what, Count of Monte Cristo, Son of Monte Cristo, sorry, 1940, yeah, he he throws um, George Sanders off the top of a, a sort of big staircase at the end, and he says, "What's the matter, chicken?" <laughs> he says, "No," he says, uh, and he goes, "Well, I've seen your rise to power, but I look more forward to your fall and push him over the edge." And he goes, "It's like a one-liner." He's done a. It is a one-liner. One-liner in, in 1940, then um, pushed him over a staircase. It's just like when Arnold Schwarzenegger says in The Sixth Day, uh, why don't you clone yourself so you can fuck yourself? You know, it's exactly like that, isn't it? Um, uh, I don't know if he does actually say that. I heard he said it, and I don't remember actually watching it in the film. I don't remember... I've seen the film. I don't remember him actually saying it in the film. Anyway... So that's all great. Um, I'm glad that you enjoyed all your Robert Powells. And uh, let's talk about what I've seen this week. What have you right? seen this week? Eh? Um, I've seen... Uh, I've seen three. Count them, three. Well, um, uh, I watched... Uh, first things first, I watched Society, uh, because oh, I watched yeah. I watched Reanimator 2. Uh-huh. So I watched Reanimator... Uh, and then I watched Reanimated 2. Reanimated 2 was directed by Brian Yuzner. Uh-huh. 
And he went on to make a film called Society, uh, which starred Billy Warlock, who I think it was 1989, and I think the next year, or within the next couple of years, he went on to start opposite Erica Eleniak in the first couple of seasons of Baywatch. Pretty sure in the UK, Baywatch was already showing by the time Society came out. Well, Society got banned, didn't it? That must be why, yeah, that must be why. I can sort of understand why it got banned, because there's a lot of sort of incest in it. Um, uh, I I wouldn't say it's a great film. It's got a pretty great... It suffers from the same stuff that Reanimator 2 is. I think the majority of them is better made than Reanimator 2. It's less stilted. But then when it gets to the special effects stuff at the end, that stuff doesn't flow that great. Although... It is genuinely disgusting in special effects. I was kind of like, this, this this film's banned. And then you watch it for... It's about an hour and a half, or maybe an hour and 40 minutes. You watch it for 90% of the running time, and you're going, well, yeah, I mean, it's not... It's not... It is a bit of incest in there. It is a bit. But I don't understand why it's banned. And then you get to the last fucking 10 minutes, and it's like, oh, my God. It's absolutely carnage. Um... Not quite as bad as something like Brain Dead. It's not. It's more um, gooey than um, gory, but the end of society is pretty. It's pretty brilliant. Yeah. It's like one of. It's like one of those films where you go, oh, there's a standout sequence, and this is what's going to sell the entire rest of the film. It's a film I've never seen, but I was always fascinated by the poster when I was a kid of a woman kind of removing her face. Tearing her face off, like, yeah. Um, Billy Warlock's really kind of good in it, it's a, but he is... It's its weird. I mean, you could have cast Michael J. Fox. Like, Billy Warlock is basically channeling Michael J. Fox in this film, and um, it's the sort of thing that you imagine Michael J. Fox wouldn't have gone near with a 10-foot barge pole, but, like, Billy Warlock's uh, actually really good in it, and he's got a cool name as well. Um... Uh, but like Brian Yuznet, so who directed Reanimator? Can we can we have Stuart that? Gordon, I think. Stuart Gordon. So Stuart Gordon went on to direct. Do you know? He did lots of HP Lovecrafty stuff. Reanimator, isn't it? He did. He did Danish horror, one of those kind of things. So I think it was either Stuart Gordon or Brian Yuznet, but I think it's Stuart Gordon went on to direct Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. I, I think you're right. Um, or like write it or something. It's no, direct it. Wow. Um, uh, yeah, right, there you go. Did he direct it? I think he directed it, which is kind of crazy. He made that this huge... I, I think that before it went to Disney, it was meant to be a little bit more, you know, out there. And then it went to Disney, and then it became about the kids in the garden and everything. But, yeah, it's fucking crazy that the guy that made Reanimator went on to direct Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Anyway, so then I had a werewolf triple bill where I watched Curse of the Werewolf... Uh, starring Oliver Reed, which we talked about last week. I watched American Werewolf in Paris. Uh, I was going to buy them both on Blu-ray, but they were like 17 quid each, and then they happened to be on Amazon Prime, and I was just like, oh, I'll just watch them for free. Um, And I watched The Wolf of Snow Hollow. Oh, yeah? uh, Which is Jim Cummings' film. Uh, The Curse of the Werewolf, I think that's one of the best werewolf films ever made. I think it's absolutely... Uh, phenomenal. I think it almost as good as uh, the original Wolfman. Um, I it's think... surprisingly violent, I remember, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think the kid in it who plays the young Oliver Reed is absolutely fucking haunting. 
Uh, it's got a really familiar cast of people like Warren Mitchell in it and uh, Peter Salas is in it. Mm-hmm. It's got... Uh, um, uh, I just thought it... But what I love most about it is it has its own mythology that doesn't really appear in any other werewolf films. Mm-hmm. And I think that... I think maybe I was saying it was, it's difficult to make a werewolf film that's actually really good. And I think that is really because you're so used to the mythology that it's kind of like you're kind of like treading in other people's footprints. Whereas with Curse of the Werewolf, they're telling their own story with their own mythology. It has stuff like Silver Bullet and a full moon in it and stuff, but it's got its own sort of mythology that it, like, embeds into the story. So you feel like you're experiencing this werewolf story for the first time. I think it's absolutely... It was brilliant. It's brilliant. recommend anyone that likes werewolf movies see the 1961 Oliver Reed movie Curse of the Werewolf. Not a Robert Powell to be seen. Um, American yeah. Werewolf in Paris is a really weird film where it's, um, it's obviously it's shit. The special effects are terrible. Uh, it's not got the original writer, director, John Landis. Rick Baker's not involved in the special effects. The special effects start off better than they end up, and then they've run out of money, and then they're like... Um, they're not even like... I wouldn't say they're on a par with computer games from that era, 97, whenever it came out. And then also, they sort of tonally miss the 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 point of the original movie where it's kind of there's horror and comedy and it becomes sort of like Euro trip with CGI werewolves. It's kind of like this really, the, the, the performances are really broad. It's really, um, unsubtle. Uh, and it's kind of like fairly misogynistic now. Um, and yeah, it's, it's not, it's not good, but, for the first half hour, it was better than I remembered it. And well, then for the, I'm trying to think. It's a feeling I might have seen it on TV, but it's almost made no impression on me whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, I remembered it being awful from beginning to end because American Werewolf in London is one of my absolute favourites. Yeah. But, yeah, it, was, it wasn't awful from beginning to end. It starts, it starts off better than it ends up, and then it's... But it's... It, yeah, it's totally so off. And we've got to do fan mail now, but I saw... This is the second week in a row that I've, I haven't really mentioned it. So The Wolf of Snow Hollow, which is Jim Cummings' uh, latest film. And, uh, yeah, it's great. It's not as good as Thunder Road, but it's a totally different beast. Um, it's trying to do something that's much more narrative. It's still character-driven, but it's much more narrative. And I think that there are loads of twists in it and uh, Robert Forster's in it. And Robert Forster is, like, an almost career best. Um, yeah, I just... Uh, I really loved it. The werewolf in it is really... Like, it, when it's scary, it's proper scary. And um, it's never really laugh-out-loud funny, but he brings the same sort of um, complicated uh, character to it where you're kind of, like going through his emotions beat by beat with him. And also what's really funny is he's kind of like made a lead character who is the mayor from Jaws, where all the other characters are literally telling him it's a werewolf. And he's saying, no, the ski season. It's not a werewolf. It's just a big man. And, um, and it's funny to have like the lead character, which is the guy who's like putting everyone in danger because of ski season. They, um, it feels like, um, so what was I going to say about it? Um, no, completely got out of my head, so. <laughs> it, feels, it feels like the sort of movie that you should watch on a, 
uh, in front of a warm fire. Okay. Uh, OK, so we're going to do fan mail really quick, and then we're going to have a song and bring our guest on. I don't think we've got much... No, we haven't, we've got no... That no, Randall Pie, sir. We've got no fan mail. All right, are you ready, Brian? Yeah, I'm ready. Let's go. OK, so, Nick, Nick, Nick. Nick, Nick, Nick. What is going on? Just because we're in a lockdown doesn't mean you should let the cunt ball drop. I insist on a cunt shout-out for me. Please. You've let yourself down, to be honest. Thanks, Arthur P.S. Hi, Nathan. All right, so Arthur says, Hi, Nathan. What, so what are you saying? I haven't said cunt in a long time. I guess I haven't, really. I guess I've turned 40 and things are a bit matured, but... Uh, I don't want to be one of them old cunts. So you're a cunt, Arthur, and I imagine if you're friends with Nathan, Nathan's a cunt as well. Uh, and Nat, you're a cunt, and Natalie, you're a cunt, and um, every all, every single one of our listeners is a cunt. Happy, everyone's a cunt. Hello, guys. Who's this? He's got. <laughs> I think it's Mick Hucknell. Ah, <laughs> uh, oh, no, I'm taking over again. Oh, that's right. This is me. This is my actual voice, not the other voice that I do when I forget how to do the voice. Hello, hello, guys. Bloody love your show. I started watching that show, Swedish Dicks, that someone recommended, and it is. I am a fan of Peter Stormare, Buffalo Bill. I'm a fan. I'm a fan of Peter Stormare. Yeah. <laughs> Haven't watched Swedish Dicks yet, I'm really sorry. I have watched some other stuff this week, but uh, none of it was Swedish Dicks. So, sorry for being such a cunt there. Uh, thanks for writing in, you cunt. Buffalo Bell. Hi, Nick and Nathaniel. I've been to see Tenet twice. That's not what it says. Hi, Nick and Nathaniel. I've seen Tenet twice now and still don't get it. Does that mean I'm an idiot? Cheers, Rupert. Yeah, it does mean you're an idiot because uh, you've been to see it twice. Okay, that is the... Uh, Rupert, perhaps you've seen Tenet twice. Perhaps that makes you the biggest cunt of them all. Okay, uh, let's play a song and then uh, bring out a special guest. You'll never believe who it is. It's only bloody Robert Powell. <laughs> Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Foobar Radio. We're back. Um, yeah, so David, uh, oh, I wow. have a cardboard, a cardboard themed living room. I've got a cowboy yeah, themed living room. You're a homeless person. Yeah, well, I'm not homeless. I have a. No, that, was that was because you said cardboard. I have a cardboard-themed yeah. living room. But, um, but yeah, it's not. Anyway, so my, we're back. We're back in the studio. We're not in the studio. I'm in my living room. And You've got a note from your producer that says you haven't introduced him. Yeah, I know I'm fucking doing it, Natalie, for fuck's <laughs> sake. Let the, I've been doing this for fucking two and a half years, and every week you're in my ass. Just give now me a said, fucking get break. I'm getting get on with it. All right, mate, I haven't introduced you. Never let him forget. Never let you forget whose show it is. It's my show with yeah. Daniel Metcalf. So, <laughs> my my name's Nick. You're joining us back live in the studio. Not live, it's Wednesday, but today is Friday, or it's our podcast, and this is me, this is Nathaniel Metcalf. We're joined now by uh, living legend. Uh, he's been in the industry for 200 years. This yeah. is Mr. David Patil. Hello. 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 How are you? 
Uh, I'm very well. So, very well as well. Yeah, I'm good. Uh, I like the use of the word industry there. I've never been sure about whether we should use that word. I know people do who are in, you know, comedy and stuff. They say, oh, the industry. But in um, Adaptation, you know that movie, Adaptation, the Charlie Coffin um, movie with two Nick Caves in it? Nick Cage. Cage. Not Cage, not Cave. Nick Cage, yeah. Yeah. One of, the, one of them is the sort of brother who's trying really hard to be a writer. Mm. And he's always using the word industry. And the other brother, who's a bit autosceptical, always says, don't don't say industry. Mm. And a small part of me agrees with Alexi Sale, who didn't say, not about industry, but years ago he said anything with uh, the word workshop in it that doesn't have sawdust on the floor is cat, I think he said. Uh, so similarly, it's not really an industry. That implies to me Albert Finney working on a lathe. Sure. sure. Well, my favourite chats that we ever have are the ones that start with me being told off by the guest straight away. So, <laughs> uh, thanks for making all that effort. I was telling you off. I was raising <laughs> this discussion. I've, I've, never, I've never introduced anyone as being from the industry before. Yeah. Um, so, I was just over excited, I suppose, to, to have you on. Um, nice to be on, Nick. It's really nice to be on. Can you but, just what, tell me- but what is Fubar? Yeah, tell me what Fubar is, and then you might tell me who Nathaniel is. Okay, it's a bloke so, we met before, and you, you, I can see you. I don't know if your listeners know this. I can see you, and you've got a really kind of packed living room full of stuff. Yeah. He seems to be a hostage. <laughs> yeah, I'm in Nick's bathroom. He's actually yeah. Well, you're in a radiator. You're in my washroom, turn to the radio, and basically every week or so, I, I give you dirty laundry to clean. Yeah. Uh, it's Is he wearing it now? The money I save on, actually, staff, I spend on stuff for my walls. Right. FUBAR is a radio station, and obviously FUBAR stands for effed up beyond all recognition, which uh, means that you can say, David, whatever the F you like. Yeah, you uh, said that before. You said fuck before. I noticed that. And mm. it made me think we are on Radio 2. <laughs> no, we're not. We're very... <laughs> no, we're not. <laughs> Radio 2. Um, so... That would explain me, because I could be... Uh, essentially, on this show, although we've got double-heading on the title of the show, I could be seen like one of Steve Wright's posse. Yeah, that's what I assumed. I sort of assumed you were. Yeah, I no, I am kind of. Now Nick's going to say, I'm now over to Nathaniel for a factoid. <laughs> Um, now, I do all the factoids around here, David. It's very much... I'm very much on the steering wheel of this um, sh- spaceship. Um, so, uh, what it, from what I've been able to work out, we're never given any hard facts about this. But from what I can work out, this is a digital radio station mm. that breaks down... Don't Don't go, by the way. Uh, this is a, yeah, you don't go. Okay. Right? This is a digital radio no, station. I'm committed to staying for an hour. Okay, great. Okay, as long as uh, good. Right. Yeah, quite long at the moment. We can fi- we can we can fill without you. Just so you know, we're professionals, but don't go. Um, so it's a digital radio station which uh, breaks down into podcast segments. Right. Um, and during lockdown. Uh, we, I think we were furloughed in a way, but we weren't getting paid for it. We were fired, but then we just said, "Can we keep doing it?" Uh, gives us. So some... you're getting paid now. I mean, I'm not. Can I just be clear? Well, we're not getting paid much. Um, right. This is basically a hobby where we get expenses. Okay. Um, I'm getting nothing. So. Yeah, when but we you. Meet, when we you meet, are... 
after lockdown, I think you have to give me some of your small amount of expenses. Sure. Okay. But we are going to give you the opportunity to plug every single one of your projects okay. and uh, in front of uh, all, of our, all of our listeners. Yeah. I think we've got significantly more than six people listening, David. Okay. I'll take uh, it back. How many? We do very well in Malta. We're like number 50 on the iTunes charts in Malta. All right. We're 67. <laughs> we're high. We're high up in Malta. Okay, I'll try and work out which of my projects is Maltese. Right. Okay. Yeah. Just give me okay. some... I, might, I don't need to think about that for a moment. Oh, well, we'll give you... We'll fill for you. Anyway, um, yeah. Uh, and Nathaniel is uh, a stand-up comedian who I have worked with uh, uh, for... Well, we've known each other for, oh, what, 15 years, 14 years? Something like that, um, yeah. He's uh, one of the... Um, uh, least ambitious people that I know. I can see uh, that from his awards on his wall. But he's also he's also one of the nicest people I've met in the industry. All right. Uh, yeah, yeah. When when Fubar said, because I, I used to live around the corner from the Fubar um, headquarters. Yeah, oh. I guess they're offices, and they used to say, "Do you want to?" I was always their emergency guest because I lived so close. Yeah. And then they said, "Do you want to do a radio show?" And I said, no, <laughs> but, but I will if I get to do a show with Nathaniel. Right. Which started off as something about fandom in general, but we've managed to um, basically strip it right down to the fact that we just talk about films for an hour and then we bring a guest on and talk to them. And okay. he was brought on as a host because he, he was the person who lived nearest to the studios. Yeah. Yeah, and he's told me that already. Well, <laughs> I hadn't, I hadn't, I, I, I didn't really know much about football. Originally, but now I'm here. Other, are there any other people on Food Bar apart from you? I think so. We've done a we've done a pub quiz with them. Okay. All right. Anyway, um, this is all stuff you know. To a more professional uh, guest would have done all of that research. We're, we're always constantly in the middle of a conversation with someone, and they're saying. Like with uh, with Matt Goss, we interviewed, and he said, "Well, obviously, radio's your life, you know." <laughs> and we were like, "Well, no, we're stand-up comedians." And he was just like, "Oh, yeah, well, obviously, well, you know about performance then." So every week, we have to basically explain to people that right. we don't just do this. This isn't just what we I, do. I know, I know, you don't just do this. Yeah, but I Nathaniel did, did, doesn't either. I didn't know that about Nathaniel, so no. I apologise for that. No, you no need to apologise. Why would you know? Yeah, I would have. I should have posters. Well, because and... I'm in the industry. I know, of course. And so are you. So I should know. Uh, and uh, and you're one of the nicest people that Nick's ever met in the industry. Yeah, <laughs> it's absolutely true. Um, but right. So talking. Of, speaking of this not being uh, your average day job, obviously um, I grew up watching you on stuff like Mary Whitehouse Experience and uh, Newman and Bedell and Pieces, and uh, and you were a very edgy comedian. And you've just come... How many children's books have you written now? What's that meant to me? Well, I just mean it's kind of like uh, when you were... I think there's an edge there. I mean, edge, edgy comedian. Edge of you were an edgy comedian, and now you've gone into the great softness. 
of children's books. Is that is that is that what you're saying? That's not. I think you're reading an implication that wasn't in the actual question. I was just like saying that you've been on quite a journey, haven't you? So the thing is, you've got a book that's coming out, and basically getting to the point where you can plug your book nice oh. and early at the beginning of the conversation, and then we can move on and talk about other stuff. There it is. Uh, no one is anyone actually watching the live? Uh, not the live, but on Friday, will they watch this? Well, no, when I... when your management approved the clips we were allowed to use, they may choose this one. They're terrible. They're the worst in the industry for that. Uh, this is my new children's book for anyone who is watching it. Uh, Future Friends. It appears on the screen, it appears to be in Russian, but that's because it's mirrored writing. From, well, I can see I can it. read it the right way. I can read it, I can read it the right, right way. way. Okay. Future Friend. Uh, and that came out a couple of weeks ago and is a book about... It's about my sixth or seventh children's book. I can't remember. Seventh? Uh, it's about a girl from 3020. It's my first science fiction book. Uh, and she steps into what she thinks is a transporter because she lives in a city where no one can ever go out. Because I mean, I wrote this before the pandemic. It's true. Before in her world, uh, it's too dangerous to go outside. Partly because of climate change, it's very hot, but also because there are mutant viruses knocking about. And my idea was that she slept, steps into this transporter. Turns out to be a time portal. She ends up in 2020, and she was meant to have a brilliant time there. Going out, meeting people, going to school, going to parties, going to shops. And I was halfway through writing it. I thought, well, that's fucked. So I fixed it. How do you think I fixed it? 2021. No, not 2021, because I don't know what's going to happen then. Yeah. 2019. 2019, because yeah. I do know what happened then, which is that there was no pandemic. So you... she goes back 1,001 years from, that, from then to 2019. OK. So at the she... end... Is there kind of like a twist, like Planet of the Apes, uh, where they go? You have to read it. Okay, of course. Because <laughs> I was going to say, you could do like a 2020 ending, which is like Planet of the Apes, like, oh, no, COVID. Yeah, well, it, it's got an element of that. I'm not going to tell you what the ending is, because I believe that isn't what you do uh, when you've written a book or a film. <laughs> Your best thing not to tell people the ending, but there is a twist. Uh, actually, in the book, I, I also write a little note from me to the readers explaining that I started writing it in January and it was meant to be that she comes back to now, but then I had to change it. Uh, and then I put a little note in saying, and maybe the world itself will end up the same way it does in, three, in 3020, unless, and then I say, you better start reading it now. Okay. Right. That makes sense. Okay. What's your... your children's book, right? And that's become like a big outlet for you. But before that, you did lots of kind of, Books for adults, adult novels and things. I mean, it sounds weird to call them adult novels. It makes them sound like they're it's porn, but it wasn't porn. They were well, just quite a lot of sex in them, actually. I uh, I read I read whatever loved me until I was at university. There's a lot of sex in that. Yeah, and and in time for bed, the previous. I read that one, and there was a lot of sex in that one. Actually, time for bed. It's got a very graphic anal sex scene in it. Uh, and actually, none, none of that would work in my children's novels. <laughs> <laughs> so it's good that I've at least worked that out from my wisdom and doing children's books. Uh, yeah, I stopped writing them uh, straight... Well, basically, the first two did really well, and then I went a bit literary with the next two. Uh, my third novel was set in during the war on the Isle of Man, which is where my grandfather was interned because he was a refugee from the Nazis and very little known part of British history is that uh, Jewish German refugees from Germany during the war were interned on the Isle of Man uh, sort of behind barbed wire and so I wrote that and then I also wrote uh, a very literary one after that and they did all right but 
uh, writing literary novels is a bit of a weird thing to do, especially if you're a comedian, because basically you're banging your head against a brick wall for the what I might call the literary establishment to take it seriously. The industry. The industry. The literary yeah. industry to take it seriously. So, uh, and then my son, while I was sort of thinking maybe I won't write them anymore, my son, who was eight at the time, said, Dad, just by chance, said, Dad, why doesn't Harry Potter run away from the Dursleys and try and find some better parents? And that gave me an idea, which is about a world in which children can choose their own parents. Uh, so I did that. I wrote about a kid called Barry who goes through his bedroom wall and he doesn't like his parents or he's pissed off with his parents, goes through his be- bedroom wall into a world run by kids where he gets to try out five different types of parents, rich parents, famous parents, parents who are never tired, parents who will let him do whatever he wants, and then he has to choose one at the end of that. And that was called The Parent Agency. Always think it's a bit weird that that idea came via my son, but I've, you know, I've dealt with that now. And, uh, <laughs> and that sold loads of copies, so I decided to carry on writing them, basically. I, I won Dave's Best Joke in 2011, and that idea was from my dad. So, what was it? Uh, <laughs> it was. Uh, I needed. I needed a password eight characters long, so I picked Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. That's a good joke. Very it's good. A, joke. It's a great joke. It was teamwork. He wrote it as a very waffly kind of like eight paragraph email, and right. I got it down to that. But so I think your dad's joke. Yeah, and I I said that in all of the publicity, <laughs> and then on the day people said, "I don't believe you or your dad wrote that joke." And uh, stuff like that. I once, I once cheated in, a, in an egg and spoon uh, uh, race, and uh, although I, although I won, I felt rather hollow afterwards. I wonder how you're feeling now. You go, One thing did. about that joke, it won, it won like the Edinburgh best joke of the tor- of tournament of the fringe, right? Yeah, it's a great joke. It is also a dad joke, isn't it? Well, a lot of my jokes are dad jokes. Well, they, although I mean, I've written them. You're, you're mainly just. Having a nervous breakdown and shouting. Is your, is yeah, but I do, I do, I do five jokes at the top oh. of every of every gig. Oh, right. uh, I say I've got five jokes and then I have a breakdown. Okay. But um, the fact that your uh, the fact that your son sort of like gave you the idea for that does that not does that not give you like a sense of uh, confidence that this is a story that would be perfect for kids because a yeah. kid sort of like yeah I would don't think I'd be writing children's books at all if I didn't have kids because after a while. You get to see the world how they see it. I mean, not well. Now he's sixteen and hates everything and me uh, primarily. Uh, but then he was eight and quite sweet, and so you get a sense of what he's interested in and how he sees the world. But also, I, I when I, I sometimes before the pandemic, I used to go and read to children in schools and stuff, and I used to tell them this thing, which I'll be interested if both of you agree with, uh, which is that everyone really inside feels like a child feels like between about 11 and 14 you know no one is actually 53 except perhaps michael gove you know no no one in real life actually is that i actually have a system which i'll explain to you in a minute uh how you can tell exactly what your age is but comedians are given a special license to carry on being childish in a way that most people aren't most people have to pretend to be adults Comedians are sort of allowed to carry on being childish, right? And whatever their body starts to decay and get old. And that, I think, has helped me writing children's books because it's never been a struggle to imagine the world from a child's point of view because I think that's partly what you do as a comedian. However you structure it, there's something innately childish about it. 
here's how you can tell what your actual age, the age of your soul is, right? You're both younger than me, but you... So was the show, TV show about film with the, with the year on it on when you were a kid? Yeah. Film, yeah. Okay, so whatever, uh, right. <laughs> whatever the year is, that is how old you are, right? So I want to say film 78, which makes right. me 14 inside, because that's what I would have been when film 78 was on. So what, what do you want to say without I thinking about it? I want to say film 96. Right, so how old would you be? Um, I would be 17. Right, that's quite old. What about you, Nick? I say film 92, but that makes me old, right? How old? Young. I, I forgot the setup. <laughs> how old were you in 1992? Oh, I was uh, 11 or 12. Well, there you go. So that's that's what you. That's my theory. Is however, whatever your brain says, it should. That's what should be on when I turn on the film show that year. That's how old you are inside. Sure, but I think it's your body that ages you, right? I think that there's a certain kappa where you cease to grow old. Maybe there's like a maximum age. That your that your mind and your soul gets, and I think it's generally about like late teens, early twenties. And um, it's not that you it's not that you uh, refuse to take on any more information, but it's kind yeah. of like I I always feel I not that I want to return to being a, a, a back at university and a student and any of that, but I don't feel like. I'm, I was 40 a couple of weeks ago. I don't feel like a 40-year-old. I feel yeah. very much, like, young at heart. I think most people are. I think it's when your body starts falling apart that, you're, that your body is literally like saying, no, you're fucking 70, right? Yeah. yeah. But and it doesn't mean that your brain has to be. No, but, it, that, but it's quite a big... You're still young enough. Uh, when you start to really fall apart, that is very confusing. Yeah. Because you do... Like, and actually, I remember... I think it was my... Um, my girlfriend, now wife's mum, saying to me that she would occasionally pass a shop mirror uh, in the street and think, who's that? And it was her, but she was old. And so it was just, just confusing cognitive dissonance because she felt like she was about, whatever, 15 or something. Have I got no. too existential and... No. No, no, no. You can go as deep as you want. OK. Or I'll keep, or keep it light. I keep... Um... Uh, like, I'm 41, but for years I've had, like, aches and, you know, I make a noise when I stand up. I don't do enough exercise, and I think it shouldn't happen now. Like, I, like when I was younger, you think, well, there'll be a time when that happens. But I didn't imagine it would be happening, like, I think you before look, I was 40. I would have pinned you as, a, as younger than Nick, I'll be honest with you. Thank you. I mean, I think, off, mate. I think purely because you look kind of preppy and Nick looks a bit like Captain Beefheart. Yeah. It's probably because... Uh, all right, you pulled it back. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and, you know, Captain Beefheart had lived a life, do you know what I mean? Oh, Who knows well, what he was? a real rollercoaster, David Baddiel. <laughs> you, you're, you're, uh, you're nice enough to think that the reason I haven't got any awards on my wall is because I'm just too young to achieve anything. Yeah, that's, I just thought you, you just had your bar mitzvah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, maybe you'd have that on the wall. <laughs> Maybe you have, you know, a menorah on the wall yeah. in the synagogue, but not, uh, yeah, you're much too young to have a BAFTA. Yeah, thank you, thank yeah. you. That's it, I might I might change a playing age or something then. I might yeah. see if I can get away with it. Yeah. Maybe I could be one of Actually, the... Young- having said that, I think you could be young dad in, like, what, like if there was a reboot of Grange Hill. You Someone's could be young. young so young enough to have an 11-year-old or 12-year-old. Uh, yeah, yeah. Fresh that's, that's true. Dad. 
That's yeah. where my uh, that's where my ego always gets involved. Where they always say, "Oh, we'd like you to audition for someone's dad," and yeah. I was just saying, "Oh, I'm not ready to. I haven't had my own adventures on screen yet. I'm not ready to give all my adventures over to my teenage child. I can't have a teenage child." I'm, so you know, what are you saying? You could play me. You play my dad in something. Yeah, well, Nick could or me. Yeah, Nick. Right, yeah, and I could play the granddad. You can play my other son, apparently. Um, it's fine. I'm not upset. Um, but I would say that... Uh, uh, Hang on. Was, Nick's died. Have I died? Am I still here? I just can hear you now, but for a moment you'd gone really weird. Oh, I think it's because I, I, I flicked my microphone. <laughs> um, I would say that... Um, I grew up in a very comedy household uh, where uh, my dad was really into the comedy, his comedy, you know, his not his own comedy, but my mum and my dad had very different styles of comedy and my sister had her style of comedy. But I would say that when we started watching the Mary Whitehouse experience, that was the time where me and my sister sort of discovered our own mm. TV shows for ourselves. I yeah. must have been nine or ten. First, it first went out... At the end of 1990, yeah, if you were 11 in 1992, which you've said earlier, yeah, nine when it started, and then it was yeah. on. Mary White's experience only had two series yeah. uh, because um, I wanted it to have more, but Rob Newman, who went a bit nuts, uh, wouldn't work with Punt and Dennis anymore, so we went off and did Newman a bit the deal in pieces. And here's a small scoop for you: Newman a bit in pieces, which was the uh, solo show that me and Rob did after Mary White's experience had one series, but it was commissioned for three series. But me and Rob split up after the first series, so theoretically, if me and Rob Newman got back together, we could force the BBC <laughs> to do two series of Newman and Pieces with us far too old. Oh, you should do it. You would be literally in pieces by now. Yeah, we would be literally in pieces. <laughs> uh, I, I, in a way, I'd like to do it, just because it'd be a fucking hilarious thing to force them to do, because I think it is still... Under contract, but I hardly ever speak to Rob Newman, so that would be quite difficult to write the show with him. Um, I find comedy quite a difficult industry like that. Where yeah, you can start off friends with some people and then you sort of lose contact with them, uh, and they're sort of always there out there. Um, yeah. but I mean, you had so much, you, you did so many things with, with Rob where. Uh, you not only did uh, Mary Whitehouse and um, like my sister and her friends used to quote history today all the time. Um, but so with it was the in pieces tour, wasn't it? Was it a tour or was it just a one off in no, Wembley? We few, no, no, we did a few tours. Uh, so with Mary Whitehouse, when we still in Mary Whitehouse experience, we did two tours, I think, as as Newman and Bedell from the Mary Whitehouse experience, and then mm -hmm. we did a big tour, and they were both quite big tours anyway, and we did. Hammersmith Apollo like ten times uh, mm. on, uh, like that, and then the next year was the in pieces tour, and that's the one that ended at Wembley Arena. And about two weeks before that tour, we had such a massive row, me and Rob, that I said, and he might have said as well, it wasn't like me dumping him or whatever. We both mutually agreed never to work together again after Wembley Arena, um, and and I started doing fantasy football almost sort of immediately after that. Anyway, so. That was that, but it was. I look back on Mary White's experience as like, and some of In Pieces, although it's quite a weird show, as you know, 
really hilarious, to be honest. It's really, really funny. And I think it's a shame. It's a shame that we didn't do more series of Mary White's experience. But Rob was, I don't know, he he he, he was someone who fame, I think, wasn't great for. Because mm-hmm. he, uh, he's really talented. I don't know if you actually have ever watched Rob do any of his solo stuff. He's a really talented performer. I believe still is, although I haven't seen him for a long time. But he was also someone who, uh, certainly at that point in time, didn't quite know who he was, I think. And if you're, if you're somebody who don't quite know who you are and you get really, really famous and you're playing Wembley Arena, that can be quite dangerous, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think I watched... Uh, there was a documentary about him writing his first novel... Uh, that was on BBC Two yeah, a long time ago. And it was something like the day after the Wembley gig, he decided to sort of quit and start writing, uh, you know, books. Yeah. Um, but then he that... stopped writing books and became and came back as a kind of... Uh, I don't know. Well, he's very political now, isn't he? Oh. Yeah. Very political comedian. Uh, I've seen him do political solo stuff. But, th- but you were the first... Uh, people that basically did an arena wasn't it um sean lock was your support actor he's technically yeah. your no he's first. not this is something that this is an urban myth right amongst comedians so he, he wasn't our support act sean he was in sketches so the show that we used to do was the live show was stand up and sketch right? <laughs> right so i'd come on and do 20 minutes and then there'd be a sketch uh, and then rob would do 20 minutes and there'd be an interval that, and then it'd carry on like that right so in some of the sketches, in just in that tour, normally it was just me and Rob, uh, we had a third person playing other parts, uh, which it was quite a big show that. We had costume changes in it and everything. So Sean came on once or twice by himself playing characters we'd written for him that were in the show, in the TV show. But he wasn't on first. Me and Rob came on first. <laughs> All right. right? But All right. I hear this quite a lot, that, Sh- that Sean Locke was the first ever comedian to play Wembley Arena. He wasn't. Yeah, I think Sean has told me that, I think. (laughs) (laughs) That was unprecedented. How did it feel? Did it feel mad when you were doing it? It felt quite mad. I mean, to be honest with you, from purely comedy point of view, there's no question that I preferred gigs that we'd done. Like the previous tours, I say, we'd done Hammersmith Apollo, Odeon, as it then was, for nine nights in a row. And I remember those being brilliant, really brilliant gigs. Um, and there's a video, I think, of us doing that show at the Edinburgh Playhouse, which is much better than the same video of the Wembley Arena show. Is that the one where you get stuck in Nidri? Yes, mm. that's that one. Uh, and I like that one. I think it's good a good representation of me and Rob and our work at the time. The Wembley Arena show was more of an event than it was like a brilliant comedy show, and it was a brilliant event. It was really exciting and amazing and taking the thing to a new dimension and all that. But I don't think it's as funny, partly because I certainly, and maybe Rob as well, was so like at odds with the relationship I was in comically with him by then that I don't think it felt at, as at ease as the other shows. No. Um, we were sort of falling apart as a duo by the time we played Wembley Arena. But also, I think most people who play Wembley Arena now, like when well, I've seen Bill Bailey or whatever do it, they do it like a normal gig with a stage at the one end. We did it in the round. In the round, yeah. And that was really weird as well, I have to say, just because you had to walk round and round the whole time, and it was revolving. Did you, you enter on motorised scooters? I didn't. Rob did. Rob did, right. Rob, who was always more of a rock star than me. Uh, sure. Comedy, rock and roll thing. Entered. I mean, I'd be too frightened of falling off. Yeah. Basically. 
we ate, we left on a bicycle. We we were History Today characters, and we left on a bicycle. Uh, so that that was sweet. But he entered himself, uh, which is not a euphemism, uh, on uh, a skateboard, and it, I think he did quite a lot of like riding around the auditorium before he started speaking, uh, which was you know it's it was all fucking exciting. It was really exciting, and I think it was an exciting night if you were there. Oh, look, I have a picture, as it happens, here. Look, this is... Uh, so th those are the characters who began the show. So we used to do these characters called People of Restricted Seriousness, which were people... And like It was a serious documentary that we did about people who actually look like this. Mm. And people <laughs> think, they've got, think they've got joke shop masks on, but don't <laughs> take them seriously. And that was a, a running, like, very serious documentary where they talked about how it destroyed their lives, that they had faces like this. So they used to come on... They, we came on as them, uh, and that was the beginning of that show. Would it have been weird, do you think, because you were saying you you could have carried on doing it? So I guess when once you've done Wembley, does it feel like, what, what else are you going to do now? You've played Wembley. Would you have felt like what would have been the next thing, the next goal, or...? I don't, I don't know, really. I mean, I don't know about live. No, that, yeah, we'd probably have... Not well. I don't do Wembley Arena again, but uh, but I just think you know. I think with Mary Wyatt's experience, which was the show that we did with Punt and Dennis, you know, the the we did one series that was pretty good, and then the second series, which was really good, right. and that was when Rob said, "Right now, I don't want to work with Punt and Dennis anymore." He rather, uh, and I, I really like Punt and Dennis, so I don't like this joke, but I'll say it anyway. He said it's like trying to do a concept album with Shawaddy Waddy. Right, and I always thought that was unfair because they're really great and really funny, uh, and also they contrasted us because we were yeah. punkier and edgier. Yeah, yeah. and they were doing Milky Milky, and that's yeah, they did Milky Milky, which was hilarious. Uh, so I just think we could have done at least one more series of that once we were up and running, and it was really funny with series two. But literally, Rob wouldn't be in a room with them after series two, and not because of anything they'd done. They're very nice blokes. I but wonder if that would have helped, though, because I guess it then it, you're then doing a series with just two of you, and it's your names in the title. So yeah. it might have weirdly had a, a knock-on yeah, effect. It wouldn't really... I mean, but the, uh, that show is a fucking weird show. It's got some funny stuff in it, Newman have been in pieces, but we are in pieces, because straight after that, he decided he didn't really want to work with me, <laughs> to be honest. But also, when you were doing... So, but, uh, if you did, like, the first arena gig in... Uh, uh, in England, and you were kind of like the people that really cemented, you know, being a rock star and being a comedian uh, with sort of that generation. When you were doing um, your History Today tour that you just mentioned, uh, when you did it at the, Scott, uh, the Edinburgh yeah. Playhouse, it's kind of like because we literally we had all those videos and we grew up watching them over and over and over again, and it's kind of like you're referencing the fact that. You're on tour doing material, and you're saying, which that was on telly a couple of weeks ago. You probably remember I said on TV last week. Yeah. And it's kind of like you're on tour promoting a show that is currently on TV. It's kind of like um, in the past, you'd have a TV show, and then you'd go out on tour based off the success of that TV show. But you're on tour, and your show is so successful that you're currently... Do you know what I mean? It's kind of yeah. like it was cannibalising itself while you were doing yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Although that's also just me thinking, I wrote quite a long bit about drinking. We used about four jokes from it in the TV show, and I've got about another five, which I want to do live. Yeah, sure. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to refer to the TV show to remind people, because some of those jokes 
are almost callbacks to stuff right. I wrote on TV. Do you know what I mean? But I didn't use them on TV. But now it's kind of like you, people just... You kind of like go, yeah, well, you, you burn material on TV. But at the same time, you go, no, this is my current bit of material that I'm doing. Yeah. And I've done yeah. it on these shows, and yeah. now you've come to see me live, and you're paying to see me do it live. Yeah, well, yeah. although I didn't do much stuff that was... You know, I didn't do stuff, which I did see. I remember going to see Smith and Jones, Griffiths Jones and Mel Smith, when I was a student. I, I saw them in Leicester, because my girlfriend at the time was at Leicester Poly. And they just did material that was from their show, like word for word, and people yeah. would just applaud. I mean, a bit like Python did. Yeah. You know, people just applaud, like, I'm really pleased to see this sketch or whatever. But we didn't do that. We did History Today and all the rest of it, but we write a new one. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, sure. But I'm saying now what happens is that, um, you know, I've seen, uh, you know, I've seen certain comedians do the same material on five different shows and then do it live and then it be on the oh, really? Netflix special. And it's kind of like you're at a point where it's kind of, oh, fuck, well, what do we do? Do we do the material or do we just cut it because it was on TV this week? Do you know what I mean? You're at the cusp of all of this stuff happening. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. One of the things people also say is you were the first ones to start the trend for arena comedy, but actually we did it in 1993, and then I don't think it really became a thing until this century because I think it needed YouTube and maybe Live at the Apollo and the resurgence of stand-up on TV for arena comedy to really happen. Yeah. I don't remember lots and lots. Maybe Eddie Izzard would have been the only one I can think of who did Wembley Arena soon after us. Yeah, there was certainly a gap, wasn't there? It didn't feel yeah. like it was synonymous then. Everyone was playing. No. No. But what do you think? What do you think the benefit of that is? You think because I like playing in uh, tiny little rooms above pubs with in front of yeah. sixty people. Yeah. And what do you think the benefit of doing it is? It that you can make loads of money in one night with one show? Uh, well, I, um, I, I didn't think it was. As I say, from a comedy point of view, I, I don't think it's brilliant. Uh, I don't think our Wembley Arena show or any show I've seen at Wembley Arena, with the possible exception of Bill Bailey, partly because he was half music. And it's sort of like the, that element of it, because he's got a bank of keyboards and all the rest of it, felt like it was OK in Wembley Arena. But when I've seen other stand-up in very big rooms, I don't really like it. Uh, but I, 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 it would be a lie for me to say, yeah, what I really want to do is just tiny rooms in pubs as well. I did that a lot in the, in the 80s. And what I like is a, is a theatre of about 1,200 people, which is what I basically do now when I go on tour. I think that's like a brilliant amount of people for comedy. Is like an old theatre that's for about 1,200 people, like Brighton Theatre Royal or whatever. Seems perfect to me, particularly because those rooms don't feel very large anyway. Even with 1,200 people in them, they feel quite small. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think there's a ceiling, and I think most arenas are above it. So you're, you were on tour when lockdown uh, came in? Yeah. Which, actually, your your show's called Troll, Trolls Not uh, the Dolls? Yeah. So it's a, I've done three shows in the last... Because I stopped doing stand-up for ages. I did it all the time in the 80s and 90s, and then I stopped doing it, had children and wrote books and wrote a film and all that, and thought I might never do it again. Because actually, one of the things about doing stand-up, and I have said this, I'm not allowed to say this, am I? The thing yeah, that you can we... say what you like. No, I can't. The thing that we just did, without saying what it was... Oh, yeah, sure, right. Yeah. Uh, I, I think I said it on that. Um, the, uh, when people say, oh, it's the most frightening thing in the world or whatever, I say it's not if you do it all the time. You, you could get inured to it and you get used to it and you know what works and what doesn't. But then if you don't do it for ages, then it's frightening again. 
Yeah. And I felt that when I, I remember doing Soho Theatre when I first started doing my the new shows. I did a show about fame called Fame Not the Musical, and I was fucking terrified again. Like, and I first done the comedy store, but then after a while it was fine and whatever. And all these shows I've done since, they're a bit different from the, what I used to do because they're more theatrical and they're more, they're a bit more TED talky and whatever. They're about one theme and whatever, but they are still, I think, really funny and they still get loads of laughs and they are still stand up at heart. Anyway, I was doing, so I did one about my uh, fame, one about my family, and this one is about social media. I was halfway through that and uh, this tour, I was going to go to Australia and New Zealand and everything. And lockdown happened. And actually, the last gig I did in Cheltenham, it was sold out, but it was about two-thirds full, which meant that loads of people got frightened enough not to turn up, yeah. even though they got tickets. So I think it was probably right to stop. I mean, forgetting, forgetting about the health reasons to stop. I think if you're doing sold-out gigs but people are not turning up because they're too frightened, then something's wrong. For sure, yeah. And these shows, mm-hmm. feel, they do feel like... Um, modern in the sense of what you would imagine you might see in Edinburgh or something. They do feel like modern stand-up in that way. But I associate you with that anyway. So the, the routine I associate with you from the past is the one where you've got the um, different ways people have died. Right. Is it like, I can't remember what century it is. No, that, yeah, that's actually from, I did a stand-up show tour in 1997. Uh, and that I think that routine is very like the bridging thing to what I do now because I always exactly, use yeah. now and I always talk about shit that I've discovered in my whether it's in my family or whatever else it is. Yeah, I discovered this thing uh, which is they're called bills of mortality and they are lists that were published every week in London in the 16th and 17th century of what people had died of. Right, and what's brilliant is they say things like it's, it's numbers. And they say things like, I can't remember now, but pleurisy, one, leprosy, two, burnt by a candle in his bed at St. Giles Cripplegate, one. <laughs> Plague, 10,000. <laughs> so, yeah, they really they were funny. And I just basically deconstructed those uh, as part of my show there. But, that yeah, that really led on to the sort of stuff I do now. That's what I'm trying to get the what I'm thinking of the question, really, but it's more that... The shows you do now, yeah, feel quite similar to that. But the shows you were doing then in the 90s, were they in a similar vein or were they much more... No, they were much more straightforward stand-up. Right. But also you had your fantasy football... Do you find that, you know, your audience changed depending on... I get lots of people coming to see Uncle on uh, the stage show. Yeah. And you have to kind of like go, I was around before Uncle, I was around during Uncle, I'm around after Uncle... I don't have a nephew. I'm not going to bring a little fucking ten-year-old kid out. Do you have get any over unkly, unkly catchphrases from Uncle? Uh, I'm the Uncle. That's you what actually I, say, what I say I am not the man from Uncle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the original man from Uncle. You know. Um, but I remember, I remember seeing some of your '90s stand-up, and it felt very much kind of like influenced by uh, by the fact that you were doing fantasy football at the time. You know, you were very laddie. Was I? I never felt that laddie, even when I was supposed to be laddie. In fact, my first ever stand-up, I used to talk about... Like, I was talking about the idea of being a lad in my first ever stand-up, which was in 1986, which was well before the concept of new lads, but saying, I'm not really one of those. I can't really be that, because I don't drink enough, and I don't have sex enough, and whatever. Sure. But uh, I had a notion, I think, that uh, it was a coming thing, for especially for men, to sort of want to talk about how male or not that they were 
Can I just stop this conversation about me and say, yeah. am I meant to be talking about my fandom of things? Your fandom is... Yeah, oh, yeah. we never get round to that. Oh, you never get round to it? <laughs> no. We can do. We've done it three times. We'll ask you at the end if you want to. Well, I don't know, I just... Do you uh, feel like... We're steering the conversation, don't worry. We're the puppet masters. OK. It's right. really about our fandom of you, I suppose. No, that's nice, but I... I... I've brought some fandom things. Oh, yeah. All right, OK. Well, well I... so you're not a bloke. Now, what have you brought on to tell us about what you're a fan of, David? Oh, so I... I've, in the past, I've talked about being a fan of Bowie and, like, a few other things, and I thought, I'm going to choose something different because I think I've said that, and there are other things I've talked about. Being a fan of Genesis, I've talked about quite a lot in a contrarian way to refuse the idea that you shouldn't... You should be in the closet about that. But forget those things. So I want to talk about being a fan of a comedian, which is Norm MacDonald. Oh, yeah. Comedian, who I've decided is my favourite living comedian. Great. Uh, and also a fan of a band called Au Pairs, who uh, were around maybe even before you were born. Sort of we, well, I've years. never heard of them, but we just played Repetition by them, which is a Bowie cover. Uh, it's not a Bowie cover. Bowie covered it. Oh, really? Yeah. Bowie covered it, I think. I'm pretty sure. Bowie, okay, yeah. you said it, it like you knew. You. Huh? you said it. You said it like you knew. You said it like yeah. actually. Well, Nathaniel. I'm now not sure because Nathaniel <laughs> said it very confidently. <laughs> well, actually, Nathaniel, why don't you I fucking knock in? I don't know. I'll take your word for it. I don't I'm know the sure. actual. Well, I'll tell you, it's about it's about domestic abuse, uh, and the au pairs were very feminist, and so I suspect they wrote it and Bowie covered right. it, which was a really cool thing for him, for him to do on Lodger in 1979, because the Au Pairs would have been quite an obscure new wave band. When the, the Pairs, When did the Au Pairs form? Uh, about 78, 78, 79, and I think they'd split up by about 1982 in the way that punk and new wave bands had. Uh, and they, they were really feminist. Uh, I think they're from Birmingham. They were influenced by the Gang of Four. So mm-hmm. a mate of mine was in a band called the Gang of Four. A mate of mine called Andy Gill, now sadly... Uh, dead. In fact, he died this year, possibly of coronavirus, although no one is certain. Uh, but he uh, he was a brilliant guitarist in this band called Gang of Four, and they were they were similar to that kind of like hard guitar, slightly funk edge thing. Oh, David Bowie wrote Repetition, so I'm wrong. Okay, I'm wrong, which is terrible because I do a podcast about David Bowie. <laughs> well, I think of myself as being a David Bowie fan, so I was also having a thing like didn't know that. Yeah, but it's you, amazing got it, thing, you got it right, though, Nat. You got, yeah, you it, right. got it you got it so right. So you fact, sound like you're gloating now. In fact, I'll tell you something, something. If I could tell you something really obscure, right? I do a podcast called Stalking Time for the Moon Boys about Bowie. Mm-hmm. It's not really that much about Bowie anymore because we've done, like, 117 episodes and really me and Tim, this other boat, just talk about our lives. But we did do a thing which was very Bowie nerdish, which was to go through every album and try and say what's the cover on the album because most of Bowie albums have got a cover on them. And we both, and I spent ages and ages in the last episode reminding him, because he couldn't remember, what the cover is on Lodger. And and eventually, after ages, I said, come on, it's repetition by the au pairs. And now (laughs) I realise that's wrong. That's wrong. (laughs) But no Uh, one listening corrected you, which means that they don't know either. It hasn't gone out yet, I don't think. Oh. So, yes. I mean, he was trying to give you a lifeline, David. So you threw it back in his face. (laughs) You two, you two have been on at each other the whole hour. It's absolutely been amazing viewing, but terrible. Anyway, those are my fandoms. Okay. I watched watched Norm MacDonald's 2017 Netflix special the other day Hitler's Dog. 
Yeah, Hitler's mm. dog, that's right. Um, and I very rarely sit down and watch entire stand-up anymore. I watch 10 minutes on YouTube when I'm trying to write or whatever, but I hardly ever sit down. Do you do that? Sit down in front of the telly and watch a whole Netflix special? I mean, I, I would say, other than Adam Sand the Adam Sandler special... Mm. which I've gone on and on about. I think Norm MacDonald's been, like, one of the only ones that I've sat down and read. I've watched the Adam Sandler one as well, which is very good, the new one. Yeah. Well, not new, but about well, a year the, old. The music, it's all music. Yeah, yeah. it's great. Uh, but I, I started watching Norm's... And, uh, I mean, this is a really, really unoriginal thing to say, but, you know, it's all right, we're on food bar. Uh, well, we are th- fucked up beyond all recognition. Yeah, we're fucked up beyond all recognition, uh, which is some people are really, really funny-boned, in my opinion. Like Eric Morecambe might be the most funny bone person who ever lived, but Norm Macdonald I think is unbelievably funny boned because some <laughs> on that set on that Netflix thing there's quite a lot of material that I think is not amazing, but he just makes it amazing. It's got sort of like um, he'll get halfway through a joke and then he'll go, uh, "You've got the gist of it." And then yeah. he'll give up on the joke because he's given you enough information for you to finish the joke off. Yeah. And then he'll just sort of like, yeah, 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 and then he'll move on to the next bit. And I think you could say that that is lazy and half written, but he's written enough for you to get it. I think, I think he's, I think he's brilliant. No, I think he's totally um, brilliant. I think, and all that sort of that sort of raggedness that you're talking mm, about, yeah, feels to me like it just gives you a really, really deep sense, which I really like. Of I know who this bloke is. Yeah, you're watching him. I really feel I'm seeing into who he is. He does this bit in that show, which I do think is not ragged and it's just totally beautiful, where he's talking about watching uh, Lee Majors, who used to be the Six Million Dollar yeah, right, Man, yeah, right. And Six Million Dollar Man, for anyone who doesn't know, who's too young, was this bionic man who uh, had an accident, but then was given lots of robotic arms and legs and eyes and stuff, and became like Superman, and it was a big show in the 70s, and he was a big star. And Norm talks about chancing on an advert with Lee Majors now for a hearing aid, right? Mm. And it's a sort of shit advert that he has to do for a hearing aid. And this was a bloke who used to have lots of devices on him, but they were amazing. But this is just a hearing aid, right? And then he does a bit of like Lee Majors talking to his agent when he gets the advert, gets the news that he's got this advert. And then eventually, after a long, long bit, Lee Major says, okay, yeah, okay, Jerome. He always does this thing of giving people names who, like, you don't really know in the bit. He's, okay, Jerome, yeah, I'll do it. Yeah, but is there any way that I can actually have put in the contract, I'm sad? Which <laughs> 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 is so great. It's, it's so great. It made me laugh so much. It's amazing. And then, like, he does a thing, which is he just stays in the position that he says, I'm sad. For ages. Yeah. Well, longer than he needs to. Much longer than he needs to, yeah. But the yeah. is, is 90% of stand-up, isn't it? I think as long... That's the thing that almost helps you write everything, is as soon Persona. as you know who you are, yeah. it's almost like that's 90% of it. I've had this conversation with someone very recently, and I would say... It's, was it I've, the thing that we did together? Yeah, I'd say it was about... I think it's 50-50. I think you've got to have material. Yeah. But you can sell... Uh, you can sell material that's maybe not quite finished with your persona and uh, and your persona can do half the work of the material for you. I think it's I think it's really great. Oh, back to Norman Donald. We had Bob Saget on earlier on in the oh, year, right. uh, who directed... The roast. He directed Dirty dirty, ro- uh, dirty Work with oh, right. Norm MacDonald, which yeah. is... Which the is, roast of Bob Saget. 
It's incredible. incredible. I think I watched the race. So if you're introducing someone to Norm MacDonald, I would say uh, you've got the Bob Saget roast, uh, you've got his moth joke. The moth joke. That he did on Conan O'Brien. Conan O'Brien, yeah. And I think that... that I think the moth joke on Conan O'Brien is just... Yeah, he's that perfectly encapsulates him. And it also is like a throwback to the Bob Saget roast where he's kind of like doing dated jokes. And then if they like that, then they'll like uh, the Hitler's dogs. But I want to get my dad into Norm MacDonald. I think my dad would really like him. Um, Yeah. Oh, he's a real good... When he does the moth joke, right? We can't do it because we'll just... It's funnier to go and watch it. But obviously that's an old joke. Yeah. But I've never... That thing he does... Of doing it as if it's a really intense Russian novel. Yeah, I've no. I mean, that's like an well, amazing thing to do. His use of language is is like he's he's kind of like he dumbs himself down, but then yeah. you know that he's smart because. No, I've got his book actually, which I haven't started reading yet, but. Uh, but that's half the battle, isn't it? Getting it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's over there. I will read it. <laughs> I mean, that's an interesting thing about his, about because I love Norm's performance. I met years and years and years ago. I saw him, I wasn't, I've never met him, although I have had a conversation with him on social media because I put him down on one of my questionnaires on The Garden as my favourite comedian and he thanked me, which I was very pleased about. But years ago, I, he used to be very handsome when he was young, right? Mm. And he did, he did Weekend Update and his career went wrong after that when he got sacked from SNL. Protesting O.J. Simpson every single yeah, week. Yeah. yeah, every week he would do jokes about O.J. Simpson being a murderer, and Don Olmeyer, who ran the network, would That's always his best be... friend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I love that. I love that Norm didn't care at some yeah. level. But before, even before that, I remember seeing him in Montreal, and he did this thing about which I am going to quote. Uh, he said, "You ever lie about nothing for no reason?" Do you know this bit? He would say, "If you ever lied about nothing for no reason," he said, "Like someone will come up to you and say, hey you seen that movie with Meryl Streep and the horse? And you go, yeah. And then you think, what am I lying about over here? <laughs> I had to gain nothing from this lie. <laughs> and that's what I mean. Like, can I read a book without just hearing his voice in every set? I probably can, but his voice is so unbelievably normal. Mm-hmm. Such a strong voice. Mm. 100%. I think that, and I think that's true about um, jokes. Like, like you say, I can think of, I mean, I don't want to say it because it always feels like I'm slagging people off, but I can think of jokes said by big stand-up, big comics, and if you think about the joke, the joke isn't that great, but I'm laughing. Yeah. Because it's the most of it is is the persona put forward, and then saying the joke is funny, whereas on paper that joke isn't a great joke, you know, but but it's the stand-up, what, what they bring to it. Yeah. Is what I think comedians... But I think also is it's like the context of the joke. Like, Norm MacDonald is telling old-fashioned jokes at the Bob Saget roast. The, the joke isn't the fact that no. those are cutting-edge jokes. The joke no. is the fact that he's come up and he's doing it. Yeah, yeah. Because you know, everyone else is going, oh, God, Jesus Christ, your mother's pussy stinks so bad. Yeah. And then yeah. Norm MacDonald comes on, and he just does these 1950s, yeah. really then, kind of tame... yeah. And, and they're quite and they're sweet. Yeah, they're jokes about how Bob Saget can't cook a chicken properly and stuff. You know, they're really, really sweet jokes. And that, at some level, it's really beautiful. I think because it's really funny. But at some level, it is a comment as well about those roasts and how horrible they are. Yeah, yeah. That, but that's exactly what he did. He yeah. said he didn't want to go out there and do all that stuff, so he's going to do something else. And he's and he stood out because he yeah. didn't try and top everyone. He just undercut everyone so much that it was just like, well, how's anyone else going to follow that? 
Yeah. yeah, it's brilliant. We've come to the end. We've got to no, play a game with you now, David. Okay, all right. I'm going to play a quick game with you. I'm going to hand you over to Nathaniel, who's going to explain the game. Okay, can I just say before we go... The, you, this has been the best hour of your life? Well, actually, I have really enjoyed it. I sort of was going to say something nice, yeah. Which is, oh. that we and Nick did this show recently, which we can't tell you what it is. But we enjoyed each other's company a lot. We've only, I think, met once before when you did my radio show. And then I basically, because I have thought, I do lots and lots of podcasts and shit in uh, lockdown. And I thought, I've got to stop doing them because they basically get in the way of writing. But I just thought, well, this is a way of like carrying, to, carrying on hanging out with Nick and Nathaniel. I didn't know about Nathaniel, but right. I'm glad about Nathaniel as well. So that's really what we've done. And we've sort of had the conversation, the incredibly niche conversation I would expect. Well, um, I had a, yeah, I've had this, I really, always been a fan. This always always been a fan, David Bedell. Thank you. I would say niche conversation is what this this is as well. This is all this show is. That's is good. Niche conversations. It's just me and Nick for an hour talking about niche things. And we've continued in there. Yeah, we've, we've done that. We've kept yeah. the brand going. So what's the game? The game is better or worse, David. And you have to say whether the next person is better or worse than the person before based entirely on my own opinion. Better or worse what? As a person or at something? As a, as a sort of entity in the world. Don't, don't overthink it. Come okay. on, we've got to rattle through it. Beginning with Jamie Lee Curtis. But is Jamie Foxx better or worse than Jamie Lee Curtis? Worse. According to me. Worse. worse. Worse, yeah. Michael J. Fox, better or worse than Jamie Fox? Better. Better. So, better, Nick, yes. Helping me. Stop just, helping me, Nick. I'm not helping you. You don't have to answer what I'm answering. Michael Caine, better or worse than Michael J. Fox? Worse. 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 Yeah. Michael B. Jordan, better or worse <laughs> than Michael Caine? Worse. Better. Worse. Jordan, better or worse than Michael B. Jordan? Jordan the... As in Katie Price. That's worse. the one. Worse. worse. <laughs> Jordan Peele, better or worse than Jordan? Better. 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 John Peele, better or worse than Jordan Peele? You're going to say better, but it's a tough one. Better. Better. The high cards. John Travolta, better or worse than John Peele? Better. Worse. Worse. Wow. <laughs> John Hurt, better or worse than John Travolta? Better. Better. William Hurt, better or worse than John Hurt? Worse. Worse, Worse. correct. It's a good score. It's a nine. You got a nine. You got a nine. I got a nine as well, by the way, but we got the same one. We got different ones wrong. Okay, so that scores you a nine, which means that you're not as good as Jen Brister, Thomas Coombs, Jason Manford, Joyce Gladney with ten, but you are as good as Ken Cheng, Harry Hill and Luke Morley with nine, and you're better than Susie Dent, Charles Eston, Eddie Eddie Hearn, David Hepworth, Magical Bones, Samantha Morton, Matt O'Kine, Miranda Raisin, Chris Stark, Stu Whiffen with eight, James King, Henry Normal, Janet Avani, Shani Vegas with seven, and Gary Delaney with six. So you are better than average there, David Baddiel. Uh, you've been an absolutely uh, great guest. Uh, your, your, your current book is out now called yeah. Future, Future Friends. Friend. Yeah. Uh, it's in shops. Everybody... Also, my tour, Trolls Not the Dolls, is, if lockdown gets lifted, we all get vaccinated, happening in the spring. Okay. Re-substituting in the spring. It's not all good news. So, everyone, (laughs) stay safe out there. I hope you're good, and uh, we'll talk to you next week. Thank you very much. Good night. Good night.